Hey, thank you for joining us today. This is Rebecca Tapia, your podcast host. If you're finding any value of this podcast, please do share it and leave a review. And also, nothing discussed here is formal medical, legal, or financial advice. And this is not a patient-doctor relationship. It is really just a couple of people sitting around, or maybe just myself, discussing difficult topics related to aging parents. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Real Conversations About Aging Parents. This is your podcast host, Rebecca Tapia. Today, I'm going to share a personal story, and it actually came to a conclusion just a few weeks ago. Um, I think there's some good lessons learned, maybe some good conversation points can maybe stir some introspection or thinking about how this may relate uh, to anything that, that you're going through or may end up going through. So uh, as many of you know, my grandmother lives with us. She's going to be turning 90 here in November, but she has a younger sister named Margie. Uh, Margie passed away just about five weeks ago. And leading up to that point, I want to kind of talk about some of the events that happened and, and how they're extremely common in the course of taking care of a significant elder. So she would be somebody I would call not an aging parent or even a grandparent, but a significant elder. I like that term because it's inclusive of people that end up taking care of aunts, uncles, in-laws, stepdad, stepmom, those types of things. So she was definitely amongst our family, a significant elder. She had a lot of health challenges, but they really didn't seemed to coalesce until maybe about two years ago. So Margie had lost, uh, she had two daughters and unexpectedly lost one of her daughters who had been really facilitating things like driving to appointments and been in the mix of anything that her mom might need, although her mom didn't necessarily need a ton of care at that time. And Margie lived with her other daughter who herself had some physical challenges that made it difficult for her to take care of her mom as as much as she may need it. And just ironically, around the same time, my mom ended up uh, moving into a home just a few miles from Margie. And as an extension of that, started spending more time with her. And at first, it was just a matter of, hey, can you take me to this appointment? Can you help me call this uh, number or navigate this issue. And it was fairly infrequent and intermittent. And I, I noticed over time, though, that it came up more and more. And over the course of the last two years, had become quite intense for my mom. And part of that was because uh, her cousin had died. So Margie's daughter had died. And, and then there were some struggles with the other daughter helping with sort of the organization or the executive management of her care. And then my mom's also a nurse. And so you'll notice for healthcare professionals, it does become sort of a natural fit. There's an understandable draw towards somebody who can explain complex medical language or decipher the the mail that comes or even explain to somebody what uh, certain diagnoses are, those types of things, medication management, et cetera. And so when my mom had initially reached out and ended up trying to help with Margie, I think of it a lot like starting to unravel like some yarn. So you pull a little bit at first and you pull a little bit more and you're not quite sure how much you're going to end up pulling or when the yarn is just going to kind of fall apart. 
And the other way I think about it is, and this is how the, the course of this goes quite frequently. If you think of a table that's a little bit wobbly and you fold up a napkin and you place it under one of the table legs and it's not wobbly anymore. And you're like, okay, great. I have helped the table that the table is more stable now. Look at me, I put the napkin down there, everything is fine. And then it's more wobbly and you put a napkin under the other leg. And then it's more and more wobbly and you keep putting napkins under and eventually you replace one of the legs. And then eventually you replace the second leg and eventually you are the legs. But you can't possibly know at the beginning when you're just folding up the napkin to place it under a wobbly leg that that's where it's going to go. And if you if you reference back to one of the podcasts uh, earlier with Jay Lynn, she talks about this with her mom. When you're at the beginning or even in the towards the middle of it, you can't possibly predict or know exactly what those demands might look like. And so um, it's very, it, it's not a binary preference. Like, are you going to take care of this person or you're not? And here's exactly what it looks like. That actually rarely happens. And even in the course of, say, a stroke, uh, we as physicians can't really immediately tell a patient or a family exactly what that stroke's going to look like in six months, 12 months, 18 months, or how much care they're going to need. We can give an idea, we can ballpark, but really it is very difficult to know exactly what you're agreeing to or what you're getting into. And a lot of the mindset issues or stressful issues that come up is sort of this insidious increase over time of demands on your resources, your attention, your time, or your own health to try to help somebody else. And I'm not saying this with any judgment that you should or should not, or I, I'm observing from these stories, which is that it doesn't sound as simple as sometimes we make it seem. There are usually at the very beginning, very obvious things, even I would say easy things you can do that you start doing because at that moment, the trade-off, the expenditure of, of time and resources seems very small compared to maybe what you have available or what you find that, that you're able to do. Now, what we see functionally is sometimes you're becoming the table leg without even knowing it. And what ended up happening with my mom and of course, now that I'm recording this, I know I'm going to, to want to speak with her in another podcast to go do even deeper on this, which I promise you I'll do that. But, you know, thinking about this, there isn't really um, a, a conversation at the beginning that's looking prospectively and saying, you know, one day I'm going to need you to take me to the doctor three times a week and manage my medications and, and, you know, those types of things. And what my mom's experience was, is that she became the only available adult in that situation that seemed to be able and or willing to navigate that. Now, of course, we don't know for sure because she was there. She ended up taking on that role, ended up doing it very well. And should she have not been there, maybe there would have been a grandchild or neighbor, or I think the, the ex-husband, maybe that person would have come forward and, and actually done that. But in hindsight, we don't really know this. So she became the responsible kind of executive manager of Margie's health for a long period of time. And what this looked like was an incredible amount of responsibility 
And this was all happening at the same time that Margie's health was slipping away. She was seemingly unrealistic maybe about her own function and what her progress was going to be. The last month that she was alive, she had really a lot of difficulty even getting out of bed, had multiple falls, was really, really not doing well at home, but also not willing to consider um, going into any type of assisted living or nursing facility type setting. So there was a lot of denial that was wrapped up in this and then indecision and just fear, just fear of the unknown and not, not being aware of what was going to happen and and when that, what I see a lot, especially with patients, is one of the ways that we react to fear is by medicalizing things. So then you just see a lot more doctor's appointments, a lot more workups, a lot of imaging, a lot of lab work, a lot of chasing things are here. And, and I think part of that helps us feel like we're doing something when we don't feel in control of a natural process like a disease progression or aging, then we try to regain some of that control by heavily engaging in the medical system to try to solve some of these problems. But inevitably for every human being, there comes a point where the laws of nature start to take over. And as far as medicine has gone, we still have not solved the inevitability of natural laws that your life eventually ends one way or the other. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So I had just been talking to my mom. We went to, to brunch on a Sunday. And I, I think at least half the brunch was us troubleshooting and talking about this exact topic, which was going through how things had escalated just without a, a lot of discussion or warning that the, the care needs were higher and higher. And she had come to a point where Margie wasn't accepting of the recommendations to get additional care. The home health people would come to the home and she would either turn them away or say she didn't know they were scheduled. At some point she'd say that she didn't have home health. And so it was a very difficult situation. I think, you know, everybody did their absolute best, but um, even my mom who had, had come to this point of, I don't, I don't know how much more I can give and I don't know how to know what else I can do. She's, she's got a lot of other activities. She's got a lot of grandchildren. She's still working. And so I think at this point, we had sort of come to this conclusion of, of, of how are we going to draw some additional boundaries and what would that look like and how would that discussion happen? And it just seemed imminently um, that the solution was going to have to be that she needed further care. Like there was nobody who was living in the home who was able to physically get her out of bed. And, and that comes with its own host of respiratory issues and wounds and that type of thing. And it was only about, gosh, probably five or six days after that conversation that I was up early on a Saturday morning getting ready to take my daughter to a volleyball game. And I get a call from my mom and she says, her daughter, which is my mom's cousin, would like to speak with you and talk through, you know, some of the, the issues and what the doctors are saying. And I remember I was just like strapping on, putting my shoelaces together for one of my shoes. And, and I just kind of stood in my closet and had the phone and my, um, my mom's cousin comes on the phone and she says, so uh, mom has a stomach bleed and the doctors are saying that she's putting out more blood than they can put in. And they've tried everything that they can do. And they're asking me how much farther I want to go 
or do I want to withdraw care and, and just let her pass naturally? And I just had this moment, as big of a question as that is, of just this weird juxtaposition of my headspace really not being there that morning. It's not anything that was on my mind. I hadn't actually known she was in the hospital until I got in that phone call. And I said, well, what, what did she tell you she wanted? And my, uh, my mom's cousin said, well, when, when we came into the hospital on Thursday, she looked at me and said, if, if this is it, if something, if something bad is happening, I want you to let me go. I'd, I'd much prefer to pass away in a hospital. It seems like they know how to handle those types of things. And I think it would be really difficult to pass away at home. So that was, that was the marching orders. And, and I remember having this discussion and I said, well, so she, she said that just a few days ago and, and you are the medical power of attorney and tell me where your head is. Like what, what's going through your head? And it was interesting because she said, I'm worried that the grandkids are going to be angry with me for not going the extra mile. And even then medically, when she says the extra mile, I think there might've been one more extreme kind of Hail Mary procedure that had extremely small chances of, of working, but, and also could further complicate her comfort and, and those types of things. And, and I said, well, um, you know, how, how much was this discussed beforehand? And, and we kind of went through the conversation and just in general that she she was not a DNR, but that there had not been really in-depth conversations prior to this. But that conversation in the garage, walking into the hospital that day or going into the hospital had been about as far as, as it had gone. And so I, I did my best to reframe the situation, not really as a discussion after the fact, but that she in her right state of mind, had been able to state what she wanted and what her wishes were, and then how, what was the best way to reconcile that with her current condition. And, you know, trying to be very sensitive and careful to not putting my own, you know, too many of my own opinions or, or perspectives in there, but to really try to help someone else honor the, the thoughts and wishes of the person for whom they're responsible. And it's a massive responsibility. So I ended up obviously not going to the volleyball game and I drove to the hospital and I came up there and if you're a physician listening to this, it was very clear when I walked in that this was not going to be a survivable incident. The The number of pressers that were on board and and blood pouring in and pouring out at the same time, that, that this was a very dire end of, end of life type situation. And we were lucky enough to catch the night shift nurse before she left and asked her sort of what was her, her last known mental state. And she said that she had been feeling actually pretty good throughout the night, was asking for some ice chips, was conversational. Um, and then the nurse had left the room and she heard Margie start singing and she was singing hymns, which was unusual. This was not somebody that normally would just break into to singing hymns. And she said it was really interesting and she walked back in and she was singing these hymns and then she just went unconscious. And it was at that time that they called all the, the codes and ended up discovering eventually that the source of the bleeding that she was having, you know, and then trying to rectify that. So that was in the early morning of the hours of, of the day that we're talking about. And so I thought that was really reassuring. And what I really appreciated about this whole interaction, it was very clear, understandably, that 
my mom's cousin was extremely pensive and distressed about making these types of decisions, especially in real time and especially semi-unexpectedly. And the the nurse had, I'm sure, been overhearing all of our conversations and worries. And, and I really appreciated that she came to us and she said, would you like me to leave all the machines in here so that when the, the rest of the family arrives that they'll know that we did everything we possibly could? And my, my mom's cousin said, I, I think that would be really appreciated. And, you know, these are little things, right? But I just remember thinking, I'm glad that there was somebody that offered a solution. Typically, after somebody passes, you would want to remove all the machines and prepare the the body for the family to come and, and have a peaceful type setting. But she had really noticed that perhaps there would be something gained from from leaving the evidence of the heroic and grand efforts that had been uh, taking place in the previous 12 hours to try to save her life. And, and so I just really appreciate that sensitivity and they ended up bringing a large tray of food. And like I said, it's just the little, the little tidbits that you remember of people being very kind and caring and really understanding what's happening. And so we had some more discussion there at the bedside and the nurses kept coming in and asking for a decision because they were running a lot of medications. It was quite likely that Margie was uncomfortable, um, and although unable to, to express that because of her condition. And so eventually my, my mom's cousin decided to stop further medical interventions. So the IVs were stopped and the, um, the blood uh, transfusions were stopped. And we kind of just stood around. It was a very interesting experience. Now, because I'm a physician, I have seen people pass away and I have seen, you know, that process happen. And I've seen after that process, not extensively, not as much as say a doctor that does hospice or palliative care, but certainly is something, um, that, that you're aware of as a, as a physician. I don't want to sound too, um, coarse in, in discussing this, but I actually thought it was an extremely beautiful family event. And this is a person who had struggled quite a bit in her body, had been through a lot of pain and disability and a rapid decrease in function with little to no possibility of recovering her prior level of function. And to be around and to support her body as it transitioned, I think is a, is a moment I will not forget. That was a very special way for us to support each other and for us to be there. And I just wanted to talk about it. I know it's very taboo to talk about, but really when you take the the medical side out of it and you look at somebody who is suffering and they achieve a release from that suffering, there is a lot of sadness and grief in that, but there's also a lot of interesting emotions of being happy for the person who has been released from that situation. And so as it happened, they left the monitors on with her blood pressure and her heart rate and, and told us it would be a matter of minutes. And we just stood there and told jokes and played her favorite music, talked about gardening. We thought we decided to have a conversation with her there and to talk about her and to tell her how much uh, we respected what she had done in her life and that we appreciated her and that we loved her and we hoped that she was okay and that she was comfortable. 
And one of the nice things of a palliative approach is that we were more assured she was comfortable because the goals of care had changed, not from stopping the bleeding, but from giving her medications and other things that would help improve her comfort in that time. And we stood there and I kind of watched the monitors from the corner of my eye and saw the blood pressure slowly over time dwindling. And I would say it was probably maybe 25 to 30 minutes later after they had stopped the life support that Margie actually transitioned and passed away. And we were standing right next to her. And it was really an, um, an honor. I, I just walked away. It was, it was this weird, I almost, I sound like I'm embarrassed to say this out loud, but it was almost this weird euphoric feeling to be in a room where that's happening. And that's not the experience I was anticipating having. And that could very well be because I am removed from the situation just a little bit. This is a great aunt and not my own parents or grandparents. But I, as sad as it was and as difficult it was to be there with her daughter at that time, I was just so honored. That's the best word I have to describe how it felt to be there in that room that day and how beautiful it was. And I have this weird analogy in my head of life being like a merry-go-round and like every every year is, you know, one time around the merry-go-round and as you get on the merry-go-round, they say, you know, hey, you're probably going to have about like maybe 75 rounds if you're average and lucky. Might be sooner than that, might be later than that. And and I always think of, of death as people exiting the merry-go-round, and I know that sounds really morbid, but if I'm still on the merry-go-round and you're exiting it and you've had the life that she had and just have given as much as she's given and and been just such a positive light in the world. I almost feel like there's a slow clap that has to happen. And that's how I felt when this happened. There was almost a slow clap in my brain, like, well done. And that's what I actually said out loud right after she passed away. As I said, well done, a life well done. And I I know that that can't probably be replicated, as I said, if somebody very close to me, if this happened, but... It was an interesting experience. And when I think about supporting significant elders or aging parents and and some of the decisions that have to happen in a very compressed time period, it just reinforces part part of this project, part of this conversation is finding ways that we can support our future selves in situations like that through thinking through some of these scenarios or even having these conversations if possible. If you are responsible, if you're going to be responsible for somebody's medical decisions, to really have that as a highlighted role and responsibility in life and really take the time, if you can, to to get an idea of what that's going to look like when you're entrusted with that. Because when the rubber meets the road, the the paper that it's written on gives you the ability to make the decisions, but which decisions to make is actually not quite as spelled out as you would think it is. And I was really, really proud of my mom's cousin who came through this and made a really tough decision and um, loved herself through it. And of course, when the rest of the family was able to arrive later that day, everybody was very supportive, which was a really good outcome. And I walked away just thinking, what an interesting life experience. And, um, 
you know, as you know, that was around the same time I had just started this podcast as well. And so I remember thinking how many, how many interesting intersections were happening in my life because I was thinking about this topic so much, even at that time. And I really wanted to just take this podcast to talk about those types of difficult decisions, about thinking of that transition differently. Think about what does a good transition look like? Um, and then really also just to think a lot about what, um, going back to my mom's experience of supporting her these last couple of years and what that unraveling looks like, or what does that becoming the table legs look like for you and understanding when it's happening, what you're going to be able to expend or not expend, what some of those responsibilities might be, how to know what's happening. And if any of that is of interest to you, please continue to listen to this podcast. This is going to be a hot topic for us. If you're finding value out of the podcast, please continue to share it. I appreciate that so much. Please leave a review and please stay tuned. I will definitely circle back and get my mom's perspective on this. Thank you so much for listening. Hey everyone, it's Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you really enjoyed the podcast. I am here to let you know I can be found on RebeccaTapiaMD.com. You can come over there to learn about my new course launching this summer, dealing with mindset for aging parents, getting prepared, all the good stuff, sharing my opinions and life lessons. Uh, Also could just join my email list so I can share more about my thoughts about these podcasts and more insights there. Thank you so much for being here.